millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to The Mentor, I'm Mark Boris. In business, you can predict someone's success by observing their ability to deal with discomfort and distractions. Tushar Menon is the co-founder of My Muscle Chef, which is the industry leader when it comes to healthy, convenience meals. He and his older brother, Nish, run a company generating $200 million in revenue per annum. Yep, and it looks like they're growing. When My Muscle Chef started in 2013, discipline was the fundamental reason for their success. Nish and I discussed the process from idea to launch, getting your product to scale, particularly if it's food, and when you've reached the incumbent stage, in other words, the dominant one, how the hell do you maintain it? So let's get into it. Tushar Menon, welcome to The Mentor, mate. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, actually, I'm quite excited to talk to you about this because I have a real interest in um, fast-prepared, high-quality foods mm-hmm. today and the movement towards that. Yeah. And I want to talk to you a little bit about that later. Sure. And also, I guess I should add to that, affordability given cost of living is much higher and and wastage given the cost of living is high. We don't want to waste time or food. But uh, So I, I have a lot of questions I want to ask you and, sure. and seek your insights on it. But before I do that, um, I just want to go back a little bit. Um, what's your background? I was born in India. Yep. So I was born in New Delhi. Yeah. So my dad's actually, he was in the army. So we moved around every two to three years uh, when we were actually in India. So my, my brother was born in like a different state. So every two years he'd get posted to a different location and we'd move around. I love India. You've been there? Oh, I had a business there. I had, a business, I had uh, 500 staff, 58 branches. Uh, me and James Packer owned a business there. It was called Wizard Home Loans actually. It was a home loan company. But we, yeah. we were lending money to the emerging middle class right. who – might have been in America and come back to India and decided they didn't want to live with the grandparents and the parents and they mm. want to have their own joint. Yeah. But they didn't have enough money so they needed to borrow some money, which is not a big th- – it has not been a big thing in India. Normally you pay Correct. cash. Correct. Everything's it's, cash. It's And actually cash. Yeah. It's And it's quite amazing. Um, we used to have to collect the interest off these people every month and the only way you could do it was actually get them to pre-sign a whole lot of checks – say two years worth of checks, pre-sign them for next month, month after, month after, month after. And uh, we used to take those checks because they would come and try and pay you by cash and yeah. there's no good. We, we forced them to put the money in the bank and yeah, then the bank and to pay us cash. Yeah. And it's a pretty amazing place. Um, it is, mate. Um, especially our office was in Gurgaon, which is not far from Delhi, but hmm. you came in from Camden today, right? I did. How long yeah. did it take you to get from Camden to here? Hour and 40 minutes. Okay. I would sometimes stay in Delhi. Right. And I'd have to travel to our office and you're going, it's maybe 20 Ks. Right. And if I traveled after 
8 a.m. in the morning, it would take me two and a half hours. <laughs> the <laughs> Easy. Tra- the traffic there yeah. is on another level. It's serious. The traffic like, there is ridiculous. In the end, I started staying in a hotel in Gagoan, which is a pretty yeah. cool city. I mean, these days it is anyway. Yeah. Um, but, like, it was fucking mental. I mean, and the, yeah. the, the freneticism of India. Yeah. On one well, hand. 1.2 billion people. I know, and, and, but, it's, but it's also a frenetic place. It's it like is. it sort of uh, thrives on freneticism. Um, it, it, on one hand, it gave you energy mm-hmm. and it made you sort of work hard and I, I really enjoyed it. But on the other hand, it, I was stuffed after a week yeah. and I couldn't wait to get back to Sydney. <laughs> yeah. And but then I miss it and I want to go back. I get this rush of uh, freneticism. It's an amazing pace. So how old were you when you came to Australia? So I was 12. So when you arrived in Australia, where'd you go to Australia? Uh, when we went straight to we went to Minto, yeah. which is near yeah. Camden, and then we settled down to Ingleburn. You must have found the pace so different. It was. It was. It was I'm trying to think back now, it was it's hard to ex- sort of put into words. It's such a different environment, you know, coming from because because we had an army background as well. So my brother and I, Nishan, who I started the business with, we grew up in like an army camp. So up until 12, it's just pure discipline, you know. So coming to Australia and then when I was 12, you know, I've just finished um, primary school. So when I came here, I went straight into year seven. It's probably the hardest year. And uh, it was just such a big change. Everything was completely different. So, you know, going from living on an army base to come, going to a public school in Ingleburn in southwestern Sydney, <laughs> it's a very big change. And when you did that, I mean, were you aware of how different you were? For skin colour is different, you know, like uh, cultural issues. What did you feel? Um, to be honest, it was more internally. So I was I was a bit hesitant. I wasn't sure how to approach the situation because it was so alien to me. So I sort of kept to myself. But the people overall were were really good. Yeah, so cool. getting into society, assimilating in was not an issue for me at all. So yeah. the school I was in probably didn't have a lot of. Um, I guess Indian kids or a lot of ethnic kids, but that was never an issue for me. And I made friends straight away. It was more of a personal thing. Like I wasn't too sure what to do and I was a bit shy. And what about schooling wise? Like we, we, did you feel as though you're up to speed or? Oh, man, it? I was far ahead. Well, you were serious? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I was very far ahead. It, were you one of those kids? Because when I used to have my staff in India, I, I used to have this guy um, who was a Sikh and he told me, his name was Vishal, and he told me that uh, he was my like general manager and he told me that his kid was like four, yeah. no, three. And he's about to turn four. And I said, oh, yeah, cool. And he said, yeah, but uh, my son has to get into this particular school. I want him to go to this particular school. And uh, I said, oh, yeah, no big deal. He said, no, he has to go for an exam. And so I've been having him tutored. At four years old. At four years old. And <laughs> that's, he said, that's the standard. The standard, yeah. yeah. So the level of education is pretty high and yes. pretty competitive. Very competitive, yeah. So I found year seven, I felt like I probably learned that two years ago. So I found year seven a bit easy, but then it sort of catches up as you get into the higher years. It sort of evens itself out. And what sort of student were you? I was a very good student. That's something my parents sort of inbred into me. So I was just always a good student. Straight A's all the time. I was ducks in my high school, school captain. And, um, and sporting? Was, sporting? Sporting. I loved rugby league. So Seriously? That's yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. So it's funny. How when did I was, you do get into rugby league? I know. It's funny. So in India... Massive cricket fan, as you know. Of course. It's a cricket-loving yeah. country and Sachin Tendulkar is my, my idol growing up. And then I don't know what happened when I moved to Sydney, started watching rugby league. I just loved it and I forgot about cricket. All I wanted to do was play rugby league and my mum just wouldn't let me. So I played I, I played for my school for a couple of years. And didn't tell her? And I, I told her she let me. Um, and then I had a couple of broken broken bones and that was the end of it. She's like, go play cricket. So I ended up playing great. You know, I was playing cricket. Did you play great, did you? 
No, I played for England RSLs, so just yeah. just club cricket. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I did that for about ten years. That was good fun, and I think that was also a good way to really get you know introduced to Australian culture as well. Because yeah. the team I was in, I was the only Indian kid in the team, and it was really, just, yeah, yeah, in 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 that Ingleburn team, yeah. But it was just a great way to you know get into society, and yeah. I think that was very very useful. But I made I love rugby league. Who's your team? Uh, who do I, what do you mean? Rugby league side. Oh, Penrith Panthers. Oh, the Panthers. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> no. You can't talk about them now. Yeah. No, I know I can't. We had uh, Ty Tuavasa, uh, Bam Bam Tuavasa, yeah, last he's, week. Yeah, he is a big Panthers On straight talk, and he's mad for uh, the Panthers. And yeah. Obviously, I mean, you guys are, you know, like on top of the world at the moment. So, a funny story. When I came in 2003, they won the premiership that year, which is why I picked them. Like, I'm going to go for the best team. And then since 2003, wouldn't win till. 2021. Yeah, but don't but worry, I, you made up for it. But I stuck with them all, all the way. But well, that's the only way to be. rugby league fan. Uh, really? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's cool. That's so cool. That's so cool. And yeah. so when you finished school, uh, HSC, year 12, well, what did you do after that? So I went to uni. I went to UNSW. Yep. Um, so when I finished school, my sort of – what I did well in school at was economics. Um, that was probably my favourite subject. I wanted to get into finance. So I picked a degree doing a Bachelor of Commerce, majoring yep. in finance. Which is hard to get at the university. It is, yeah. I think the UI requirement was like over 98. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so um, just scraped in, which was good, um, considering I was at Ingleburn High School. And usually they sort of downgrade you based on the school you're in. But yeah, it yep. sort of depends. But anyway, got into the course and um, that was I was very happy with that. My parents were super stoked uh, for me as well. Australian but, School of Business. Was that sorry? Yeah, yes, Australian School of Business, yeah, correct. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah, so I started my, my degree in 2009 and that's what I got into after school. But I felt like that wasn't really my passion. Um, I felt like I was just ticking a box. So after school, my goal was to get that good ATAR and get into the, the degree. Yeah. But I felt like I was doing it because I had to and well, it was I a process. Yeah, and I didn't really know anything better. So just being a good student at school, always, you know, performing well, it just seemed like the right thing to do at the time, but it wasn't really what I wanted to do. And I was a bit lost, to be honest, when I got to uni. Because you, you move out of the structural the structure of school at Ingleburn, your parents catching the bus to school, hanging out with a certain type of kids, doing the same subjects you're doing, mm. swapping notes. There's a structure there, playing footy, playing cricket, whatever mm. it is you're doing. Then all of a sudden you turn up University of New South Wales out of Kensington and you're free to do whatever you fucking want. Correct. If you don't turn up, bad luck. Correct. That's your problem. But no one's going to say, dude, where are you? Exactly. You don't get a phone call and, and you're And that was hole. a big change to be oh, honest. A, and and you're a, a young change. man too. Like at the time you Correct. might think you're old enough but you're 18 or 17 and a half or 18. You're immature. Yeah. And uh, and you, it's a bit of a trap. It happened to me. Yeah. I, I, exactly the same thing happened to me. And my first six months of university, uh, those days you did semesters and we had to do four subjects per semester. Correct, yeah. I did four subjects. Um, I failed two subjects because I didn't go to one lecture. Yeah. And then they, then the university, the dean, well, I got a letter that said, you have to do the next four subjects plus you have to do the two you failed and if you fail again, you're out. And yeah. That, uh, that, that was a kick up the arse that I needed and uh, – I didn't. I never found another. I mean, I did well, really well after that. Right. But it was a it was a cultural shock for me mm. walking around that giant premises yeah. at university. It's a massive, massive. Place, yeah. And you don't know anyone. Correct. There were not many kids from your class. Mate, no one from my school went same. there. Yeah. Same. with me. No one. No. One. I had to make friends. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't know. Like they're all drinking coffee. I never drank coffee. Like yeah. they all go to coffee shops. Yeah. You go to the out. uni bar and hang out. Yeah. You all hanging out at joints. They all knew each other. There was a pub down the road. In yeah. Anzac. Parade there with these still going. I didn't know anybody. Yeah, it was a bit weird for me. Yeah, you have the same event, mate. Exactly the same. How'd you get there? Or so you... I caught a train. So yeah. I catch a train from Ingleburn to Glenfield, Glenfield to Central, then jump off a of Central, catch a bus, Eddie Avenue, 
to um, Yuna's W. Did you end up moving out there? Because I ended up having to move out there because it was just too no, much. No, always stayed trouble. at home. Did you? Yeah, yeah. It was too home. much, man. Like um, I had a car. I bought a really cheap car from Wrecking Yard. Right. And it kept breaking down. And uh, in the end I moved out there because it was just too hard. I yeah. Mean, I thought because I, 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 I was there was an exam coming up and uh, I got there. The exam already started. It was 30 minutes down at Unisearch House. Right. I don't know if they still have the exams down there, but I remember walking in 30 minutes late and I was rushing through yeah. this quant, quant methods or something like that. And uh, I thought, oh, man, I'm never going to do that again. So yeah. uh, I moved out that way and I've been there ever since. Where, where did you move to? I moved to um, Kensington okay. and then I, then I moved to Bondi. Right. Just a shit joint Bondi, like yeah. it was 30 bucks a week. Um, but, but this is going back a while. So university, did you just keep doing the course or you, or you got used it? fuck this, I'm not going to do this anymore? No, I kept doing the course. Yep. Um, I just went part-time and started working. Where'd so, you work? So at school I got a job at Toys R Us when I was 14. Toys R Us, yeah. So 14 and nine months, the moment I turned that age, got a job yep. straight away, really wanted to work. And my first paycheck was, yeah, $6.12 an hour for two hours. That was my first shift. And uh, so I worked at Toys R Us for over four years, but I left that when I started started uni, so I didn't work for a bit. Then I got a job at a call center um, selling insurance. And that was just, at the time, just I just needed a job. So I just sort of decided to get anything. I remember when I first started a job, absolutely hated it. And I probably did it for two weeks. I'm like, I can't do this. Then I just feel like look, you've got this job, let's make it work. Like, don't quit. And that's probably one of the best decisions I made because working in that call center for almost two years, making outbound calls, hearing no 95% of the time every single day, that was life-changing. How do you mean life-changing? It just, it just builds that resilience yeah. and perseverance. Like you're calling people up, outbound calling. You got them, I think the KPI was 180 calls a day or something like that. So you're wow. calling these people that don't want a phone call and they're telling you to you know, get lost, get stuffed, and don't want to talk to you. But you still got to hit your target, which is two sales a day. So you had to sell two policies a day, which is 10 policies a week. And when I started off, I was the worst. No good at it. Never had any sales experience. Within six months, I became a sales coach there. I was the best sales guy. Because with me, when I do something, I have to do it well. So I would come in before my shift, even though I was paid hourly, I'd listen to recordings of people that did a really good job. And I'd take notes down. And then I'd try that in the phone calls. And just that experience, it just taught me to... Just that resilience and perseverance to, you know, get better at something you're not good at. And that honestly was a very good experience for me. Like got me out of my shell. And this, so you, you were doing this like working there and doing your, your degree? At uni as well, yeah. Yep, so I, was, yep. I did uni part-time, so I do two subjects per semester and I'd work there full-time. So then you completed the degree. Did you move out of um, the insurance outbound call business? Yeah, so that's when I started my, my muscle show. Oh, straight away. Yeah, yeah. So well, while why, I was, why the hell did you do that? Like, so okay. So while I was working there, I really got into the gym. Yeah, and um, I can see that you're pretty, you're pretty um, buffed. Still, still trained now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I really got into it, and um, I would wake up every morning before I went to work, make my chicken brown rice broccoli, my three containers, take it in. Everyone in the office knew me as the guy bringing in his tuna and brown rice or his chicken and brown rice. Did that for a while and then got sick of doing it. Then I remember for a period of time, mum would do it for me because I was living at home. And then she's like, I'm like, I can't do this for you anymore. It's too much effort. And then I can't remember who it was, but someone in my house, I would bought Light and Easy or one of those yeah, Weight yeah. Watchers, one of those brands. And I'm like, this is awesome. Like the meal comes for you. I don't have to cook anymore. But then I looked at the protein and the macros. I'm like, this isn't right. So jumped on Google, started doing some research and no one was doing it. I'm like, surely there's so many people out there like me that work out or play sport, have an active lifestyle. They just want a healthy, high-protein meal. 
why isn't anyone doing this? And I just scratched my head like, this just seems very obvious. And at the time, no one was doing it. So I asked my friends, uh, I'd ask people at work, like, what do you think this idea? Like if I brought these meals in, would you buy it? And everyone's like, of course, this is a great idea. And that was while I was working. And then at the time, my brother, who's co-founder, he was so he got into the the startup world and being an entrepreneur a lot earlier than I did. So after he finished, so he's five years older than I am. Uh, once he finished uni, uh, he got a job at Macquarie Bank and he worked there for a few years in, in IT. And then he was part of this startup incubator program that took him to San Fran. And he got the opportunity to work with like Facebook and Google and with all sort of startup stuff, which was pretty exciting. And I was a bit jealous. I'm like, I want, to, I want to do that as well. Early day. This is back yeah. in t- 2012. Yeah, yeah. And um, so I told him, I'm like, man, I have this really good idea. I think we need to do this. No one's doing it. And um, he sort of backed it. He's like, all right, let's do it. And he flew all the way back. And that's how he, that's how he kicked it off. Who were the people who you thought you could sell to initially? Me. <laughs> so yeah. people like me. Yeah, yeah. So, so hence the but, name, I guess, My Muscle Chef. I thought people that are busy professionals that go to the gym or play sport, have a very active life, they need a high-protein diet and they don't want to cook, that's my target market. And they want to, you know, for me, my goal at that time was to build muscle and because I was a pretty skinny kid growing up. Um, I was very, very scrawny when I was growing up, which is why I started going to the gym because I wanted to, I guess, pack on some muscle. You and your brother made a decision that based on a sort of limited survey. Yeah, um, very limited. Yeah, There's a cohort of people though around your age group who had similar goals to you, want to put muscle on mm-hmm. and, and it'll be fit. There was nothing available for them to eat in terms of protein, macros and micronutrients or mm-hmm. macronutrients in, in particular. Yeah. Um, and you just decided we're going to make this shit yeah. and sell to this audience. Yeah. What was the first step you did? Uh, that, was, that was probably six months of research. Um, we have no background in food, right? So I'm, I'm, I was in, you know, studying finance, working in insurance and my brother's in in building apps and web development. So no background in food. None of our family members have ever owned a business. So we don't, don't come from a family history of owning businesses either. You know, so uh, we had no idea. So I literally just search, Google search, how do you start a business? I downloaded eBooks and I would just read, just read how do you do a startup and, you know, just learn as much as possible. So I did that while I was working full time and while I was at uni. So probably six months of just research and understanding how to launch it, creating the products. What did you learn? Um, I think at the time was more understanding the process of how to start a business, like the financials, how a PL works, you know, how to run a profitable business, how to design a product and to make sure that caters for the customer, how to get it to the customer. Because we're talking about food here. Food's quite complex. You know, how do we get it to them in in a state that's good quality, tastes good compared to when you made it? And just that entire you know, supply chain process is not easy. So just understanding and learning that. And I would logistics. Buy- yeah, logistics was was something we really had to learn and just how to make food and all that sort of stuff. And we got to a point where it felt like there's not much more you can just learn by reading. Like, let's just give this a crack. Because we, I felt like we were probably on the fence for, oh, not on the fence, but just thinking about it for way too long. Overthinking it. Overthinking it, yeah. I, I would say at least six months went by where we were trying to plan and work out what the product looks like and making all the meal plans and the menus and all that sort of stuff and realize, okay, you know what, let's just give this a crack. Let's find a kitchen. Let's just start cooking it. We'll deliver it. We'll work it out. Yeah. And I think making that decision was crucial. So I remember we picked a date. It was the 26th of January, 2013, <laughs> Australia Day. We're going to launch a landing page saying that My Muscle Chef coming soon. Right. And um, my brother did that. So he built the website. 
Uh, it was a ten dollar template that he found somewhere. So the first website cost us ten bucks. But he was good at this stuff, and he was very good at this, this stuff. Is his territory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we built the landing page. We set up a Facebook page saying "My Master Chef coming soon." We didn't even know when we were going to launch it. We just wanted to just put. Did it you out put there. your menu on there or something? Oh, we put like a sneak peek yeah, of yeah. what it, what it would look like, but we still didn't know the launch date. We just wanted to put it out there. So once we did that, it almost forced us to just get the ball rolling. It puts pressure on you. Exactly. So we found our first kitchen very close to here. It was in Potts Point. It was actually nice driving up here, brought back some memories. So our first kitchen was in on Bayswater Road, right behind, um, there was a Chinese restaurant, I think called Crane, uh, right above it. And, um, and that was when the cross was still in its heyday. So did when you say you found a kitchen, like what was it, a kitchen? Needed? It was literally just a tiny kitchen. A little kitchen. Someone rent the kitchen out. Correct. So there was a restaurant that had a spare kitchen out the back that they weren't using. Yep. And um, yeah, I don't, I don't even know how we landed on nothing. I was going to say, how did you find that? Like, how do you find a kitchen? That's we used Gumtree. Yeah, Gumtree. Yeah, we just searched on Gumtree, and I, I can't remember why we picked the place, but we just picked it, and uh, it was right for the time. And one of the reasons was it had a lot of freezers, so because we were doing frozen meals at the time, and one of the reasons that we ended up going with it was because it had a lot of freezer space. Yeah, so which is quite an expensive exercise if you have to go buy them. Correct. Yeah, yeah. So they had like a garage downstairs that had a lot of freezers. So, yeah, we started off there. Um, but Nish and I, my brother, we we can't cook, so like we need to find a chef. So again, advertised online on Gumtree and Seek, and I do all these interviews, and the chefs knew I had no idea what I was talking about. So most of them would reject the job. And I'm like, I'm, I'm going to give you the job. Like, no, nah, I don't want to work with you. Like they knew You're that. Too big I, risk. Yeah. <laughs> they knew I had no idea what I was talking about. And he eventually found this guy. Uh, he was a backpacker from the UK. And he's like, yeah, mate, I'll give it a crack. I told him, look, I'm starting a business. I have no idea. Do you want to come on board? I'm not going to pretend like I know what I'm doing, but I'll work with you. You know, do you want to do this? And he's like, yeah, sure. Why not? How'd you pay him? How'd you fund him? Uh, so I, I was still working full time. Right. So my brother had a really good job. So, so he this was is like a side hustle. Correct. Yeah. So um, we were still both work full time, use the wages from our salaries to pay the guy. We got a kitchen hand as well and buy all the supplies and all that sort of stuff. So we did that probably for the first for the first three months I worked full time, then I stopped. And Nish probably did it for the first nine months, then he stopped. Um, and my dad had sort of retired at the time. So he needed something to do. So he'd be there during the day while I was at work. I'd be calling him and he'd be running around and grabbing stuff for me, which was pretty cool. Uh, so it was very helpful having him around as well. You obviously went register name. Yes. And you registered the URL. Yes. So uh, how important was that to you at the time? Because, I mean, the My Muscle Chef name yes. is, uh, in my view, quite predominant. Yes. Not because you probably sell more meals than anybody else. You probably sell as many meals as everyone else added together actually. But um, but the name itself is very good. Did you? What did you do in terms of protecting that name? Straight away, we um, trademarked everything from from. Oh, really? Going. Yeah, day, straight away. Day one. Day one. The first one of the first things. We and how did. do you find a trademark person? Like again, just searched online, and that's something I left to my brother because he had more experience than I did. So anything that was too technical or related to any legal matters, I'm like Nish or my dad. I'm like, you guys sort it out. I don't want to be involved. So they sort of sorted that out for me. Okay, my muscle chef is now making frozen meals. When you uh, first started. When you yeah. first started, who determined the menu, and how did you know what people liked? And how do you know um, not to waste time? In terms of what people liked, complete guesses. So I worked with the chef to work out, again, what I liked and just sort of worked based on that and used his experience as well, of course. And we put together a very, very, very basic menu. I think we had maybe five or six options when he first started. Uh, but it was basic stuff that people that go to the gym, I know they will eat that. So, you know, chicken, broccoli, brown rice with a sauce or steak, broccoli and vegetables, all that sort of stuff. So it was very, very basic. 
and it was a lot of trial and error as well. If something didn't work, we'd take it off the menu straight away. And what we did, which was a great way to get the product out there and get some feedback, was sampling. So when we first started the business, social media advertising wasn't really a thing. It was just sort of taking off. This is back in 2013, right? So, and we didn't have the funds to do that either. So every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I'd go to a different gym around Sydney. I just cold call them, say, can I come set up a table? I'm going to give out some free samples. And they were all very helpful and said, yeah, sure, go for it. So I set up a table between 4 and 7 p.m. As people walk out, I'm like, here's a meal. Here's a flyer. Try it if you like it. You can buy online. Here's 20 bucks off. And that worked so well. Did they give you feedback? Um. If they were trying it in the gym, then yes. Yep. But usually just to make it easier and not create a mess, I'd like take it home, heat it up in the microwave. If you like it, you know, you just order online. Here's a flyer. And that worked really, really well. How did you know it worked? Because, yeah, or the order, we just see the online orders coming through. Like every week we'd see more and more orders coming through. And that was the only way we were advertising. The only way was sampling and getting people to see the product and getting exposure that way. Okay, so we're going to go to the break, but I'm just going to stop you here before sure. we go to the break. So if I just put a pause in for a second and park a few things. So right now we're doing, you're doing at this stage, um, pre, pre-cooked, pre-packaged, frozen meals with a menu that was somewhat fungible, yeah. um, depending on you know how people were receiving the meals. You're cooking out of a small kitchen, freezing stuff in the freezers. You had your, your IP registered, et cetera, to the extent you could do trademark, et cetera. You, yeah. you weren't big. You were just funding it out of your own pocket. Correct. Um, were you making a profit? No. No, no profit. Not so at all. Losing dough. Yes. So so you're in the build stage. Yes. How do you reach outside of normal distribution? And how do you market yourself? And how has the product evolved? Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. So we just covered off... uh, the Mind Muscle Chef early journey and it sounds like every little startup that ever starts up and by the way, in your industry today, there's literally hundreds and hundreds of you guys. Yeah, a lot of competition. A lot of competition. Yeah. And most of them won't make it. Yeah. Because there's an incumbent, Mm -hmm. someone sitting in the driver's seat. Yes. And it's actually you guys. Mm. My Muscle Chef's everywhere. Yeah. And you're so big it's hard to take market share from you Mm -hmm. unless you sort of did something silly by putting in prices up to ridiculous prices or something or you stuffed up the food or yep. it's very hard for them to take market share away from you, which means you've got scale. I want to talk about scale. Mm-hmm. Did you go and get bigger premises so you could actually meet scale demand? I think at the start we waited for the demand 
Um, we didn't want to take a big risk to get a bigger premises if the demand wasn't there. And luckily enough for us, we got in the right time and the sampling marketing I was doing was working. Um, and just to add to that, one thing that Nish and I from day one, the, our biggest focus was customer experience and quality. And I think a big reason for that is because we hadn't done a business before, for us, it seemed like that's the obvious thing that you do. We didn't know how to take shortcuts. You know, so from day one, quality, it just had to be perfect because no matter how good your marketing is, how good your logistics or delivery service is, the food doesn't taste good, you're not going to buy yeah, it. Yeah, totally. You know, so quality, we were just so specific about the quality. And customer experience, if you paid for an order, you have to get it. Yeah. I don't care what happens, you have to get that delivery. And there's times where, because we had, we spoke of Excel spreadsheets, right? So we started delivering to Newcastle and Canberra and we'd miss the order in Canberra. And then we've just worked 12 hours straight. Like, oh shit, we missed a customer in Canberra. We'd drive all the way out just to deliver one Do box. Do yourself. Yeah. Do it ourselves. Yeah. Just deliver one box. And Nishna would fight over it. Who's doing it this time? What was the process? So at the very beginning, the process was we'd cook during the day. Uh, we'd let it freeze for a couple of days. So we sort of had a couple of day cook cycle. We'd let the product freeze, we'd store it. And then on the weekends, we'd deliver. So Nish and I would take turns. We rented a, um, froze, a refrigerated truck and we'd take turns. I'd sleep, he'd drive and just vice versa. So we would um, start picking all the orders at like 2 a.m. We'd finish by 6 a.m. And then 6 a.m. we'd jump in the truck and go deliver it all around Sydney. So it was like in a, in a esky, like a foam esky yep. uh, with uh, dry ice in there and then the meat. And just put out there. the front of their, their yeah. apartment building or wherever they told Correct. you to deliver it. Yeah. So we, for the first, uh, for the first like two years, we initially did all the deliveries ourselves. So we just, we, we would just go out on the weekends and deliver the boxes ourselves. So we did that at the start. And I think that was fundamental f- in terms of scaling the business because it created really good habits and principles that customer experience is so important no matter how big the business is how small it is we have to make sure every single experience customer has is we expect them to have the customer experience starts when they go to your website yes you want a frictionless experience yes totally frictionless yes Um, when they come to your website um apart from collecting the address you got to send it to what other things that can cause friction yes did you get from them or what things maybe did you say we don't we won't ask for this because there's some friction involved when we started, we just asked for the email and the address just to get the, the order out. It was right. very, very basic. Our website, to be honest, we didn't really focus much on the website user experience when we first started. Our, our sole focus was on the actual product. And we thought if we overcomplicated, try to focus on too many things, we're not going to get there. So let's start with the product. Let's just at least make sure the core fundamental of the business is- It tastes good. It tastes good. Let's get that right and everything else will fall into place. So I guess to your question before about the scaling, so once the demand was there and we were sort of comfortable, we moved into a, a new facility in Western Sydney, which is in Chester Hill. Remember that was a 200 square metre um, little commercial kitchen. It's not big at all. Uh, but at the time it seemed great because we were in a 50 square metre kitchen before that. Uh, so that was in September 2013. So we were in the Potts Point place for about six months. And so we are in Chester Hill for about a year and then we outgrew that. Then we found a place in Condor Park in Bankstown uh, that was about 800 square meters, big upgrade. And I remember when I walked in there for the first time, like, I'm never going to move out of this. This is fantastic. And this is a great facility. And we set up there. I was there for about a year and a half. And by the end of it, mate, we had stuff everywhere. It was just completely outgrew the place. What do you attribute the increase in demand from? Well, I guess speed to market, definitely a big yep. factor. At the time, there wasn't a lot of competition around, but I just have to keep going back to quality. Our product was fantastic. We didn't do a lot of marketing at the start. We really didn't. Uh, for the first couple of years, it was purely through word of mouth and sampling. I get the product, 
to the customer, get them to try, they'll tell their friends and family. And that worked really, really well. It was only in about 2016, we started our social media advertising. And at that time, it was a lot cheaper than it is now. Yeah. And uh, you got a really good bang for buck. So when we started our social media advertising campaigns in 2016 through Facebook, uh, we saw massive uplift. And that was when we were in the Condo Park facility. So we saw massive demand to a point where we had to start culling down the advertising just because we couldn't cope with it. And that's when we made the decision to um, build um, a factory. And that's the place we're in now. What is the actual proposition behind why what you were offering was so much, became so much in demand? The, the fundamental proposition is convenience and time. It's not about protein, really. It is. It is, but fundamentally, if you take all the layers back, yeah. what starts that need that I need to look for this is the convenience and the I time. I can't be fucked cooking, basically. Yes, exactly. And I'm a young person or I'm a busy person or whatever the case may be. Correct. And this is a good substitute. Exactly. And that was a very obvious piece of information, but something that we ignored for the first probably four or five years of our business. So when in the first four or five years we were frozen food delivery business, we thought that everyone that used our product, and this is all based on assumptions, right, goes to the gym and they want to use our product to, to look better and they need the high protein. To, to build muscle. Yeah, yeah. or, or to, lose yeah. weight or whatever yeah, it may the, be, right? Yeah, yeah. Then 2018 was a turning point for us. So we got a couple of investors on board as well, um, James being, being yep. one of them. And we're having conversation and um, the question got asked, have we ever done research or you know surveys amongst our customer group to understand what is it that they want? Why do they actually buy? Not what do you think they buy? Yeah. Why do they actually buy? Yeah, that, that's a big difference, by the way. Massive difference, right? It seems obvious, but a lot of business owners don't do that. What's their purpose? Why am I dealing with why yeah. are they dealing with me? Exactly. So we did this research and it was absolutely game changing. So we had five years worth of data of customers that had bought from us. We did qualitative, quantitative analysis. Did you outsource that? Or- yeah, we outsourced yep. it. Yeah, yeah. So we've got a research agency to do it. Uh, it was expensive investment, but absolutely game changing. And what came out of that was our customer was not who we thought they were. I was expecting the feedback to come back, you know, your fitness enthusiast just goes to the gym and that's all you. Yeah, me. Yeah. And that's what I thought. And every all the decisions we made prior to that was based on what I thought the customer was, right? Survey one. Mate, completely different. Mm. It was convenience time poor individuals that want a healthy, high-protein meal to fuel an active life. Yeah. And what I mean by active lifestyle is they play sport, they may go to the gym, they do runs, they go swimming, whatever it may be. They have an active lifestyle, they're busy, they don't want to cook, they want a high-protein, healthy meal. And if you look at it from that perspective, all of a sudden we've gone from a fitness enthusiast to this massive market. And I remember that year, so FY19, we, would, we were a $20, 25000000 million business since we made that discovery, in three years, went from 25 to 200. Three years. In, in terms of value or in terms of turnover? Turnover. Turnover. And t- 200 million turnover per what? Per year. Per year, okay. So that, that's quite amazing. Um, well, the amazing part about that, and although I'm not surprised, is because um, when you, when I first asked you, as I said, uh, what research you do, and you just said, no, stuff, are we just going to go and make this high-protein thing because that's <laughs> yeah. what you wanted. Correct. I thought to myself, which is a ballsy thing to do. But yes. by the way, sometimes anything you can do. Yeah. Just have a crack. Yeah. But over time you discovered something completely different to what you originally thought your proposition was. Correct. And the proposition is why people deal with you. Yes. Not why you think they'll deal with exactly. you. Exactly. And that's a really important bit of Mate, research to get done. 100%. And how would you but how would you do it today if you because you have the customer list. So yes. you can go and ask them. Yeah. 
If you were trying to come up with a new product, how would you do it today if you didn't have the customer list? Even now, we do a lot of research not using our customer list. So if you, there's research agencies out there that if you tell them what product you're looking to launch, they'll come up with what a target demographic would look like. Obviously, you work with them and they can do that research for you. So there's plenty of agencies out there that can provide you that help. Because yeah. we, we do research now uh, of our existing customer base, but also people that have never heard of My Muscle Chef or never used My Muscle Chef, just to understand. Do people in the 60s and 70s buy your stuff? They do, yeah. Yep. So our core core demographic would be between sort of 25 to 40, yep. or 44, you could stretch it to. Are they families or one of um, um, There is families, but couples and individuals would make up the, the biggest majority. Male, female? Male, skew. female, surprisingly, 50-50. Yeah. Yeah, so when we started that um, that process of the research, we're probably maybe 70-30, I would say. M- male, um, female? Yeah, so now it's 50-50 because... Once we got all that research back, we tweaked the brand. So the brand used to be a muscly dude with his arms arms folded. Yep. Uh, we tweaked it to what we look like today. We completely changed all our messaging, all our advertising, and um, appealed to a brand new audience. And that's when we got that more even demographic split. So this is all online. When did you start distributing through retailers? The retail. End of 2018, we started. So we had a lot of customers that would ask, uh, where can I buy the meals when I'm on the go? I've forgotten my meals. Ask you. Yeah, that email saying, yeah, yeah. you know, I get my meals every week. I, I keep forgetting them for lunch. Yeah. Is there anywhere I can buy it? Yeah. And the number of inquiries like that started really piling up. And that's when Nish and I thought, okay, maybe a retail opportunity could be viable. Um, we didn't know anything about the retail business, the retail game at all. So we hired a sales rep. and These we, are brokers, aren't they? No, no. No, internal, internal, sales, internal, yeah, internal okay. We just hired a sales rep and I gave him a list of a 1,000 random stores, IGAs and PNC, PNC stores. I'm like, mate, just go in there, sell the product. That's how we started. And he would literally door knock and say, I have this product called My Muscle Chef. Would you like to stock it in your store? The shelf life concept, mm-hmm. how important shelf life is yep. for a retailer. Mm-hmm. One of the things I noticed about your product is, and I've tried most of these products, by the way, if it's not Chiravact mm. like yours is, then they tend to preserve it with preservatives mm-hmm. and it can be too salty. Yes. And you get that mad salt feeling, which mm-hmm. I'm really sensitive and I don't like it, okay? Right. You see, you're either going to have to preserve it through preservatives, mm-hmm. which is largely salt and other things, or you're going to have to preserve it through get, getting the air out of there so bacteria can't accumulate. Mm-hmm. And if you're selling it through a retailer, a big retailer, they're going to say, Listen, we don't want it if it's only going to last a week because, you know, people, we want the, the product we get from you to last a month or five yes. weeks. Yes. Where did you find out about this? So um, when we did the research, we moved from frozen to fresh. Yeah. So what that told us was people want fresh product um, and frozen meals are you know, a thing of the past. So that's when we started doing research to understand how can we get the most shelf life out of the product, not just for retail, but for online as well. Yeah. Because the benefit you have with frozen is you can store it for two, three months. Yeah. When you get a fresh, you can have that time and limit that you have to eat it within those certain number of days. You can store it in the freezer if you like, but you know, you do have that time pressure. So we did some research to understand what's the best way to preserve the product. And um, we saw some products overseas actually um, that were already doing cryovac meals. And that's how we got the idea. And then I reached out to a few companies in Australia that provide these packaging machines saying, is this possible? Like, look, yes, it is. No one's doing it at the moment, but uh, we know we can source this for you. And that's how the conversation started. So if we were getting into the game of fresh meals, we wanted to make sure we had a product that had the required shelf life. So down the track, we don't have to make any changes. And we wanted to, we wanted to start sort of on the right foot. So fresh means in a fridge, mm-hmm. not, not having to be kept in a freezer. Correct, yeah. 
What about the whole thing about plastic now? People say, oh, fuck plastic, I want to get over it, you know, single use, all that sort of mm. story, that discussion. Where to from here? I mean, like is there going to be a move against it because of the packaging? It's definitely a conversation point at the moment and it's something in the business that we take quite seriously. So for us, over the next two years, we want to try eliminate plastics as much as possible. So we have a few projects internally now more related to our meal trays. So like our meals come the in a tray. Table. Yeah, it comes in a tray. Correct. You're talking about the bottom part. Correct. Because you can't chorovac without plastic. Yes. I, mean, yeah. I don't know if there is a proper way. Not, not that I know of at the moment. Yeah, yeah. But uh, what we're focusing on is a tray. Yeah. Um, um, that's for, one piece you can eliminate. Exactly, yeah. So we're currently working on that and our plan is over the next two years to to move away from that as something that is more environmentally friendly. You're saying you're doing $200 million turnover a year. Mm-hmm. Important point is pricing. So whilst these are convenient, people will only pay a certain amount of money for convenience mm-hmm. and then they'll say, oh, fuck that, that's too expensive, I can't, I can't afford that. Mm. Particularly today, cost of living going up, you mm. know, interest rates, all that sort of stuff happening. But how do you price your price? So that's definitely a part of it. Um, if you break it down, for, especially for a single person, the amount of time and cost of buying all the groceries compared to buying a single meal for 10 or 11 bucks, it's a no-brainer. The economics just make make a lot but of sense. But how do you make the economics work? I mean, is it because you buy bulk or how does it work? Of course, yeah. So we, we, we buy everything in bulk. So we have the, the savings coming through with that purchasing power that we have. But we always aim for that sort of 10 to $13 mark. We feel like that's a sweet spot when it comes to, to ready meals and that's what's worked for us. So you build your margin in that? Exactly. You sort of say, well, you know, I have a margin I want to make. Yes. I've got to make for yeah. my investors and you know, to make this business viable. Yes. Um, for cash flow, et cetera. If, if all of a sudden, like now, cost mm. of inputs, I presume the cost of inputs gone they up. They have gone up, yes, of course. So in order to preserve your margin, you have no choice. You have to put your price up. Mm-hmm. We do have research from our customers as well to understand. So we asked our customers, you know, if the price was to go up, how do you feel about it? So research. I think, yeah, but it comes down to the value for money. If customers feel like they're getting value out of the product, they'll pay whatever it takes. So on average, we're probably a bit more expensive than our competitors and we don't look at it from a price sensitivity point of view that if you put the price up or down, our sales can go up or down. I think if you have that approach, it can be quite dangerous and you might tend to find yourself changing your prices pretty frequently and we've never had that approach from the very beginning. It's you, all been always been on value. Have you guys thought about going into any other product lines? Yes, yep. So we, we don't just have meals at the moment. We also sell snacks and drinks. So we have cookies, we have oat bars, protein bars, we have protein drinks. So we expanded our range of products. So no matter what time of the day you need a, you know, a healthy food or drink option, we have something available. Yeah, because and there's a few coming. Like I've seen that Mob Quest. Yes, they're doing a lot of aggressive advertising mm-hmm. at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, is there someone sort of chasing up your tail? I mean, can you feel it? In terms of meals? Yeah, well, in, in any of the categories. Well, in, in the category we're in now, in the meals category, it's extremely competitive. We, know we have small competitors that are popping up all the time because the barrier to entry in the market is not that high. Yeah. It's just scaling is That's quite the barrier, though. That's the barrier. Capital's yeah. a barrier. You, you can get to a certain point, but then you can't scale past well, ca- Capital's a barrier. Exactly. Because you, you go along to all the usual suspects about to raise money, they're saying, we're already invested. Yeah. We're, we're with my muscle chef. Yeah. And they're not going to go twice. No. So, yeah, the the um, the category is quite congested uh, in terms of the meal space. Snacks and drinks is probably even more congested, but our primary focus is on the meals business. And we feel like the product that we have now at the price point and the service is market leading. So where to from now? So you've got this business, great turnover, you know, maybe you could double it. You know, I, I, my mate Adam McDougall, like he had his great business, you know, and then um, someone come and tapped on his shoulder. 
somehow he's still there helping out, but but it doesn't matter. He he made a good, had a good payday. Yeah. What seduction are you trying to resist at the moment? I mean, to be honest, um, I feel like we're just scratching the surface, even the Australian market. If we look at the data around our penetration rates, it's not as high as where we need it to be. And the goal when Nish and I started the business was to make My Muscle Chef a household name. I think we're on the way there, but we're still not there. So I, I think you might be surprised. I, mean, I think a lot of people yeah. know who you are. Yeah, of course. No, look, the, the business has grown, of course. Don't get me wrong. And um, especially with the retail presence, that's helped a lot. And, you know, I want to bump into people and they know who the brand is. And I think because when you're so invested into the business, you may not realize that. Yeah. But for us, growing in the Australian market and potentially overseas in the future, there's still so much room to grow. And I honestly feel like we're just scratching the surface. So in terms of the why I'm still doing it, I want to create an Australian iconic brand that even once we move on, let's say we sell the business in two, three years or whatever it may be, we move on. Um, we create something that's everlasting. It's an iconic Vegemite. brand. Vegemite. Yeah. Yeah. And it never, it never the goes away. The new version of Vegemite. And it never goes away. Not, you know, whether not, it's kids, uh, families. 1923 Vegemite was first well, well, there you in go. Australia. And I think next year is its 100th year. Yeah. And uh, it's people all around the world talk about it, and and it was actually developed as a health food, yeah, full of vitamin Bs, yeah, or well, the B B B group, yeah. and uh, and st- and used for that purpose. Yeah. And uh, your meal is sort of along the same sort of terminology. I mean, it's not vitamin B, but it's like it's it's a balanced meal, it's a functional, high protein, yeah. healthy meal, yeah, yeah. And macro and micros, and uh, yeah. and and something think- for the whole family. Yeah. And we want to make it a, a family occasion down the track. So you know whether. You know, it's, it's interesting whether you're you're a kid and as you're growing up, you know the My Muscle brand, and you buy certain products, and then as you evolve, you get older, then you move on to different products in our in our range, and we just want to be that household iconic name, and that's what sort of our goal is. At what point do you sort of say, you know what, uh, we're really good on the front end, we're not going to manufacture our own product, we're going to give some of the formula or the the secret, and get someone to do the do the cooking for you, so to speak. You know, mm-hmm. like outsource it to someone who does this across the board for a thousand other types of entities. I mean, do you ever do that? Do you think about it or are you, or are you just going to continue on controlling that process yourself? Um, we will always control that process. Yeah. While I'm in the business, that's never going to be something we'll outsource. So we've actually just invested in a brand new facility in Unora. Uh, so we have three facilities right now. Uh, we bring all into one into one mega factory into Unora, and we actually just commissioned it about four weeks ago. Right. It's been an 18-month project and just to come to fruition, which is very exciting. The office actually moved in yesterday, so a lot, lot happening at the moment. Um, but the main point of doing that is to control the quality. And something we've done really well is we've controlled our quality as we scale. So you think about the exponential growth we had. It's very easy to fall off. You're getting so many orders coming through. You don't know what to do. Your business is doubling month on month or year on year, whatever it may be. And we've won the product review um, meal delivery service of the year five years in a row. And that's been through this growth. And that all comes down to obsession around quality. Like what I said about when we first started the business, every meal had to be perfect. That still holds true today. So it doesn't matter that we've scaled and we're a much larger business, that quality is paramount. It comes down to us controlling it ourselves and that's something that we're very precious of. So you therefore control control quality assurance, which is – Pretty hard to do, that's, and that's a big deal. Mm. As your volume jumps, your quality assurance must also jump. Of course. And do you outsource your deliveries? We outsource our deliveries, yeah. yes. Okay, because so yeah. there's plenty of um, good delivery organisations. Correct, yeah. So we have, we have a very good network around the country. Yeah. So we deliver to all states, including yep. you know Tassie as well. 
So we produce all the product ourselves, and then we outsource the the last mile logistics, which you know we have some great calories that we work with. But in terms of controlling the product quality itself, something we always want to keep in house, and you know that that's I don't think that's going to change. Perfect. And I always offer this to everyone if they want. Have you got a question? You want to ask me? I do actually. Yep. Um, I've, I've watched a few of your your videos uh, online. I've you know, followed you for a while, so it's great Thank to you. be on the podcast. And uh, I think for me, one of the questions I had was your biggest learning, you know, working um, with Kerry Packer through the whole Wizard Home Learn experience. Really curious to to hear that and something you can share with me. Yeah, well, in the early days anyway, um, I was making sure I, I was clear in my mind that I wasn't all things to all people. Mm. Um, in other words, I didn't know all the answers. And probably more importantly, I didn't know the questions. <laughs> so be open to someone asking you the questions, right? And 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 testing those questions, testing your answers, but be prepared. I don't want to say pivot because I hate that word, but be prepared to change your mind or at least be challenged to change your mind. Mm-hmm. But I think that that that's something that was that's a that was a big deal for me because that's what Kerry Packer did to me all the time. But I, I and I never was offended whether I didn't have an – and if I didn't have an answer, it didn't matter. I could go find the answer. Yep. But I think probably the biggest issue for me was in my business anyway, lending money. We were a capital-intensive business because, you know, if you come to me to borrow money, I had to make sure I could lend it to you. Mm. I wasn't manufacturing something. I was I was, I was financially manufacturing money. And to some extent I don't control that because a good example is there's a global financial crisis and uh, money just – liquidity in the world just dried up mm-hmm. uh, and and therefore um, I'd fortunately I'd sold by then. But if you if I'd have kept on it during that period um, thinking I could get make more money out of all this, then this external event which I don't control could have just killed me off. Right. And so what I learned from all that is sometimes you don't really want to sell, you think there's more in it, but someone comes along and makes you an offer, which is a bloody good offer, um, you just take the offer because you don't know what's ahead of you. Right. And I, I'm not suggesting this is in your case, but you just never know what's ahead of you. You don't yep. know whether it's – in my case, you, I didn't know there was a GFC coming. No one knew there was a GFC coming. Um, and it was a big surprise to everybody. And it was only a couple of years after I sold the business that it happened. Right. And uh, it was nearly like Kerry knew. Um, maybe he did know. Maybe he had an inkling of it. But – so therefore, I would say this: in terms of um, capital-intensive businesses, mm-hmm. businesses that require lots of capital, in my case, and perhaps your business to scale may need more capital, but never assume that global liquidity is going to exist forever. Okay. It comes and goes, right? And even your big backers, yes, whoever they might, they might, they might have redemptions in their fund, mm-hmm. and then they say, "No, no, we can't put any more in," and all of a sudden, your business is going to stall, yeah, and then. What happens, in, and I watched this with the other people who I was competing with, I'd sold, so the other ones were still there. Everybody stood back and said, I'll just wait for this organisation to become cheaper, the, the buyers. Right. Okay. And then that's what they did. Yeah. So the thing I learned from Kerry was, and he always said this, and he's a big gambler, if the money's on the table, you take it. Take it. doesn't matter whether you need it because mm. when you need it, you'll never get it. Yeah. If it's there, take it. If it means you're going to dilute or whatever the case may be, it doesn't matter. Just take it off the table. Yeah. That's something I'll probably learn from Kerry. It's probably my best lesson ever. Okay. Bear in mind my business was capital intensive because, you know, we never lent our own money. We mm. borrowed the money and lent it to people. But yeah. I had to rely on capital markets to get that. Yes. Yours is a different business but if food all of a sudden increased triple to three times and you had to still keep selling the product to your customer but you were making a loss, so that would be a problem. You know, if, if we had floods all across Australia for two years, and we couldn't grow lettuces or whatever it is you put in your product, you know, 
pumpkin or potato. Or, we've, we've been through that. For yeah, sure. totally. Yeah. And it looks like things are changing mm-hmm. around there. Like it does look like we're getting more of these events. And yes. food prices maybe, I don't know, it's the maybes that Kerry always looked at. Right. The what ifs. Right. He said to me one day, son, what if those global banks mm. that you use to hedge prepayment speed, interest rate differences, foreign currency differences, because mm. we borrowed in every currency. Right. Well, we borrowed in the three major currencies and not Australian. Um, I used to hedge the risk of those currencies, those, the currency risk and the interest rate risk, et cetera. And I said, and he said to me, what would happen if one of those hedge fund um, counterparties who are banks mm. had a problem? And I used to say, well, there's no way. Like they're, they were, I won't say their names, but they were top six banks in the world. Yeah. Well, guess what happened? GFC happened and they did have a problem. And in fact, one of the ones we were dealing with had a major problem. Yeah. And probably would not have been able to honor the counterparty um, agreement with us mm. if we were still in business. Right. So Kerry was always good at what ifs. Okay. Um, and sometimes I used to think they would be crazy and I'd be defending the position. You're right. Um, yeah, so that, that you, I think it's important to have someone to ask you the what ifs. Okay. Maybe it's your business partners and your yep. investors. But. Well, I'm very close to my brother and I think a big part of the business success is the fact that we work so closely together and having him there is – I wouldn't be able to do it myself. So yeah. You know, having him there makes a big, big difference. And I was like yeah. my brother. My, my brother is sort of a prophet of doom too. He's always – there's a problem, you know, like he always finds problems. So yeah. that – I'm more the other way. I'm right. more, everything's going to be right. Don't worry, we'll fix it. Yeah. Um, he's always saying, there's a fucking problem. It's a problem, it's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> Let's fix it. And uh, yeah, okay, well, that, that's cool too. Like you've yeah. got, you, you got someone who you really trust. Exactly. That's so important. No agenda. No, not at all. Not, and I think the business are probably brought us closer together as well. Yeah. Uh, which is, which is that's fantastic. That's a great experience. Your mum and dad must be, are your parents still alive? They're alive, yeah. Yeah, yeah they yeah. must be so proud. They are, they are. And they've you. been quite involved in the business as well at the start. So um, they must really, be so proud. Yeah, no, they are. You're sort of living on clover now. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks very much, Tushar. I really appreciate Thanks, you coming really... in and telling me about your business, My Muscle Chef. It's a, it's actually a phenomenon in Australia for me. So it's great to observe. I'm really happy you came in. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. And all the best you, to you, by the way. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Mentor. Audio and production is by Jess Morley. And production assistants, Jonathan Leondis. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.